Bookworm Games, episode 42, Kid, It's Good to Have Guts. Depending on how close you zoom in or how far you zoom out on it, what follows from the desert despair sequence represents either a major turning point in the story, significant as Lahan all over again, or simply a change of scenery, from Ave to Kislev, and a development along lines already laid down by what's come before that hurtle us along to what's bound to happen. After that long series of cutscenes, the game offers the player a chance to save the game, which telegraphs that there's more yet to come. This next cinematic sequence opens with a new character, Kaiser Sigmund, playing on the organ, a similar song to the one the nuns in Nissan sang. His name recalls Sigurd, and he looks something like the space captain of the opening movie, but with a grayer beard and pointier ears. He plays serenely on as an officer briefs him on news from the border of the destruction of the forces of Ave and Gebler. He seems not to notice the implication that they should attack. The Kaiser is more interested in the gear recovered from a location he ordered searched. It must be Weltall, the gear stolen from Kislev, and he must have had some other source for this advanced knowledge of where it was. Again, we hear about the black boxes, the evidence of communications with a pirate prince. And this actually seems to come as news to Kaiser Sigmund. The subordinate makes explicit, then, the suggestion that they should probably attack. But Sigmund is unmoved. That would exhaust Kislev. And Solaris, or even Nissan, would remain to finish them off in their weakened state. Eventually, he stands up. The little squeak of his chair pushing it back from the keyboard to go outside to meet another new arrival. At the airship dock, a strange visitor indeed comes out of that round, urn-shaped vessel. A strange crew of masked soldiers and a masked woman. Apparently she's there instead of Graf. With their delivery a way through the barrier. More cryptic words, as unsettling in their way as her buckled mask, come in response to the Kaiser's question why they are doing this for him. I've told you before, I simply wish to observe what is in store for the world. There are so many things you people must know. I am merely your guide. I cannot directly assist you. How you use it is entirely up to you. Which is strange first because he doesn't seem to know her and says he'll ask her just once. So then she replies, I've told you before. It sounds like they have spoken. But also it's strange because this puts her in something like the role of the player, to observe and to guide. Perhaps 
we can guess who this masked woman must be. It emerges that they, that is, she and Graf, brought the gear called Velta to Kislev initially, and now she whispers to him, but he undercuts that somewhat by immediately telling his associate what she said. They want the gear transferred with the pilot found inside it to the D-block prison. Now we get Faye's dream. He's running through the darkness, like the lyric and the theme song, Small Hall of Two Pieces, Run Through the Cold of the Night. Those lyrics we'll have to look at more closely at some point. But in the dark with him is the light of the swinging cross with its red stone. There's footfalls and a kind of distant clanging. There's a synesthesia of light shining from the red stone as a bright sound. And his bright shadow moves around him in it. But he runs straight ahead toward the player, laughing. The stone shines brightly, and the view cuts to survey a house like those in Lahan. The music box music comes up, and wind in the treetops. The camera moves as if searching, swooping, teleporting. It settles on the ghostly images of Faye as a child, and a woman who must be his mother, dressed in blue, bouncing and rolling a ball back and forth between them in the yard. The scene becomes like an old film strip then, sepia-toned with the brightness of the figures, supersaturated. They repeat that movement over and over, rolling the ball back and forth, it bouncing away, Faye hopping after it and starting the game again, as if it's stuck on loop, as if damaged and unable to show whatever should come next. Faye, as an adult, stands watching the projector screen that hangs in a blue infinitude. Then a spotlight snaps on, and that there's a child Faye sitting, his knees drawn up, sitting in its light, watching fixedly, too. And then the music cuts to those ominous rising strings that played when the music box broke. There's another child Faye hair disheveled across his eyes, whom we saw in the cockpit of the gear in Lahan, standing now somewhat menacingly in the darkness behind both other Fays, watching the watchers. To adult Fays' question, where am I? His answer, or is it all he can say? You shouldn't be here. Then each figure disappears with a snap, like Klieg lights shutting off in a theater, adult Faye disappearing last of all. From that vivid, dreamlike tableau, he regains consciousness to find himself in a dingy bunk bedroom of Zolda-esque realism. It's like the pirate's dorms, but bare of the camaraderie. There's a nurse, concerned for him, but without any of the comic relief of the Yggdrasil nurse. And the music is lachrymose. 
His same question, where am I, gets its sensible answer from her. This is Nortrun, imperial capital of Kislev, in the prison, which is also the slum. Faye is weak, but over her protests, a troop of battlers barge in, demanding Prince Charming for the baptismal ceremony. Conflating fairy tale and religious language, with an unmistakable jumping-in-hazing ordeal, all of which is couched in their crude diction, dropping their H's, mocking and threatening, and Faye has no choice. Unexpectedly, they march him first to a room like the Kaiser's. The same music and decor, there's still lifes on the walls, what looks like fine whiskey on the table, but the room is without its organ, and its place the champ awaits. Faye gives his full name and gets only Rico in return. He says, kid, it's good to have guts. That's the red-haired, green-skinned giant counseling him. But they need to see if it's the real thing. They need to see how strong he really is. And Rico raises a clenched fist, recalling Graf, visually as well as in his words about strength. But with that variation of guts, courage, being the determiner of strength, and that note of sympathy, while still proceeding with the necessity of the tradition. So the baptism is enacted outside to see uh, pan over the industrial rooftops, all metal and steam, just as the kids at Ava taunted Kislev with. In the tiny yard, a different game from the pastoral memory, which it's unclear if Faye consciously retains. First, there's a memory cube there, a chance to save and get re-equipped. Then these fights will determine your rank as a prisoner. The battles against the first three are indistinct. They're billed the same as the forest elves in battle, just as their sprites are copies of one another, just with different hair colors. But the fourth, against Suzarn, he or she is dressed like the Reaper, with a scythe that halves Faye's HP with each blow. Still, there's practically no way to lose before you face, in the final fight, Rico himself. And it's a fight like Bart's against the Red Gear. It's one you can't win. So it's an appropriate sort of ultimate measure of guts, that northern courage celebrated by scholars of Beowulf, and by Atticus Finch in his assessment of Mrs. DuBose. It's fighting when you know you're licked before you begin. Still, true to his aversion to violence, maybe feeling himself being pushed too far, Faye almost refuses to fight. But when he's put in a headlock, a move Rico doesn't actually have among his skills when he joins your party, a voice comes in a red light saying, out of the way. It knocks Rico back and brings Faye to his knees. Anyhow, a full-blown loss of control doesn't come 
and after a few turns doing a single point of damage with each hit, you're rocked by a power this beast of a Rico won't actually have once he joins your party. Is this due to Faye's weakness, or is it his strength that's on display in this mini-tournament? Anyhow, back in the infirmary again, as a rank A, of course. That one thing Rico reminded his cronies to take care of yet was presumably the explosive collar Faye wakes up with around his neck. The only chain that binds the prisoners, the nurse tells you. Civilians like her, and other battlers and freelancers, and even children, occupy the D-block neighborhood. They are apparently free to come and go, so why would they choose to be there, dwelling in squalor alongside such a dangerous population? We seem to be invited to ask this of Rico himself a bit later. And closely related is that question that is hinted at about Faye's whole attitude here. He seems not to be lonely, not to be worried or anxious. He has just kind of a flat affect, as if in shock, until a familiar face reappears to get things moving once more. Up on your feet once more, having taken Rico's beating. The industrial music, the finger snaps, jaunty bass, the kind of mournful whistling entices you out to explore. Gathering information, sampling the food from the French-accented waiter who claims that it has effects it doesn't actually have but apparently they depend on your rank, as if that mattered. You might hear about the love that's put into it by its cooks. You might hear also about this supplier, Hammer, and about the sewers that can be accessed from a rooftop. Outside, there's a ladder up to those roofs where there's also train tracks. There's kids convinced putting money on them to flatten the coins will make them worth more. And there's the observation tower where you learn that escape is impossible through the tunnel and that the automation of the trains detects heat sources on the tracks, shuts them down. Jumping down from up there will get you fined. Feeding the dog will make it stop barking, but there's nothing to pick up from inside its doghouse. Another dead end is to be found inching along the duct to reach another rooftop, where the repairman mocks you for imagining that he might be doing anything else there. At the Nissan-run orphanage, we learn of a riot that took place 15 years in the capital prior. Rico uh, is called Ricardo by the nun. He's one of the casualties of it, as he lost friends, she says. And the rumor has it, it was caused by tensions between the ethos and the Kaiser. Hmm. A more recent fire, apparently, left the children there without parents. There's a kid on the roof, watering flowers. Maybe since he has no dad to look for, no visible horizon in the smog to look towards. But not only does Faye not ask 
If they've heard how he helped Margie escape from Shikan, no one here talks about the war at all. It's bizarre compared to the obsession with the topic in Aver. Now planting some further seeds, a couple of kids in the street have a poem about the ethos. Remember, ethos is the translator's choice for the word that's simply church in the original text. The song goes like this. Above the cross, a goat's horn, east and west, the ruling God's throne, the one possessing the red seal. Here and there, digging up treasures of the past, or so they say. That's the song I wrote. It's about the B-Info store. Machine parts they have for gears from all over the world. I know a lot, huh? His companion, more subdued, says only, This is a dangerous town where thieves will steal the shirt off your back. But she's not scared. The other kid is her bodyguard. Thieves and the ethos will make themselves felt eventually. This literary quality hinted at in the poetic comma use of the song is apparently a condition here of the industrial city. It's elaborated further in the placards you can read on the walls detailing the news of the day of advertising hammers wares in the bar with its neon signs above the door, a woman called Latina holds court behind the counter. The one drinker's fantasy is to be not protected, but beaten up by her. As the bodyguard kids outside could be a parody of Cloud and Eris, maybe she's a riff on Tifa from Final Fantasy VII. There's more grainy pinups that can be seen on the walls, as in the prisoners' common room. And we learn the job of the prisoners, aside from those who tend bar, is to clear the sewers of monsters, bringing the bounties to earn enough to eat. This theme of the survival of the strong, of cleaning as an image for what that looks like will be reiterated in various ways, culminating in the coming purge. Rico's room is up above the bar. The door to an inner room is locked. He's not there, apparently. But around the end of the bar room, with its sad drinkers, the beastoid supplier, Hammer, awaits. His little rat face with its little spectacles, his green garb like a demi-human satan, and an unctuousness and familiarity all his own, which fate for some reason allows, maybe just because he's so insistent on it, calling him bro. This salesman oozes connections, flattery, and items. There's also the gear shop run by the ethos. The scene for it is reused as the lobby of the battle arena, 
which you can't reach just yet. You're stopped by the guard for a tedious bit of running around, talking to people, a lot like what happened in Ava's capital. It starts when he tells you some important-looking people were looking for you. As Hammer said, seems your big news. Looking for them in the bar and in the dorm, finally you find them coming down from Rico's room upstairs. It's a councilwoman called Rue Cohen and her bumbling guards. Faye refuses their offer to fight in the arena, even if they provide the gear. Hammer scolds him for this. He says, we could still make it. And power is everything here, that the powerless, the weak, are just oppressed. It seems he's taking this personally. While Faye, sagely, or is it psychopathically, is unconcerned, simply walks out. Is he not interested in escaping? At the dorm, Hammer's there again somehow already, bursting with the news of a new doctor. It's his ticket to the black market medical treatment routes. But who else? Satan should appear. He's been spying, that's how he found out that Faye is there, and searching for a way to get to him. And once again, Satan is the impetus to action for Faye, not physically showing you a music box this time, but recalling Faye's not-so-distant promise all the same. Could you have forgotten, he remarks, your promise to Bart to protect Nissan. As if for the first time, Faye wonders out loud, what happened to him? Why, sinking to the bottom of the sea of sand. And Faye realizes he's done it again. It's just like at Lahan. And Graf was there too on the border. And strangely, given that we heard Satan name it as he flew over it, in the escape pod, Satan now claims not to have recognized the giant gear, the Dora, that was there, wrecked. Nor does he blame Faye for the destruction that happened, any more than he blamed him for what happened at Lahan. Now, it's Hammer who says that escape is impossible due to the collars. He even uses the phrase, Game over, if it blows. But Satan is still willing, kind of cavalierly, to try this anyhow to get Faze off, and Faye can let him. The player actually has a choice here for the first time in a while. A hilarious little scene will ensue if you say okay, where he messes up almost catastrophically, gets a safety device to fall off of the collar, which you can sell to Hammer for a tidy little profit. Only then... Does Hammer remember, it seems, and bring up that there's a special pardon from the Kaiser for winning the battling tournament. It slipped his mind as an option because it's impossible, given uh, Rico's domination over the past two or three years running, and that there's good possibility of him killing Faye and making it look like an accident. Um, 
particularly when you consider that despite the shock absorption, he's got a bomb collar around his neck, uh, apparently without a safety feature on it now. And to have turned down the pardon, talking about Rico now, Satan uses that Rico, the champ, must like fighting a great deal. Then he asks, could there be some other way? But it seems like there's nothing for it. Faye says as much himself, and I'll quote here. I know, Doc, I still don't like gears. That much hasn't changed. When I pilot them, I become aware of how unstable my very being is. Even if I don't want to think of it. But at the same time, it is also a connection with some lost part of me. If that's the case, then, recently I decided I would stick with it to the end. Ellie also had been troubled by the same thing, and if I just stay depressed about it, nothing will improve. Satan says he understands him better now. And maybe the player does, too. They rest. Maybe Faye is overwhelmed, fatalistic at this point. But maybe it's also a kind of hope that's growing in him when he considers what Ellie is going through with him. It seems impossible that they should not meet again at this point. And so maybe that's what he's been doing, simply waiting in the prison of Nortun. In the night here, we get our first glimpse of what will become a familiar interlude. Though you might expect we would see Ellie or Bart or even Margie. Instead, it's a planetary set of orbs, screens and faces not named with a sound of machinery like a robot life support. They're discussing, and again, I'll simply quote here, because there's too much. Faster than we expected, the awakening of the untouchable one. It has been three years since we heard any news. According to the memory cube, he is currently in Nortun, the imperial capital of Kislev. Detestable, vexing, cursed. If only he did not exist, the lambs would not have been turned into the animus. It has been five hundred years since our fall in the days of destruction that he caused. We would not have had to do this in such a troublesome manner as we do now. The excavation of the anima relics in each area is proceeding as planned. It's too late to change things now, but in the future we'll shape what will be. Fade, vanish, disappear. Although we do not know which route it flowed from. We're fortunate the gatekeeper was activated. From the ethos, or it doesn't matter. Although, 
So are you saying that we mustn't break Ignace's equilibrium? Well, it's just the surface, and that land is unclean. That is merely an excuse. It's a justifiable reason. Even Cain would not object. But we can't use the Gaichia key, not until the proper time comes. There's a third fleet in Bledovic. Their reserve units will do. Oh, his fleet. Your orders? To purge. Give no motives. If he knew our motives, it's obvious he'd do something unpredictable. But wouldn't we need more men to raise the entire area of Nortun? There is an ancient reactor in Nortun. We'll use that. The half-life fallout will be 1,000 years. Nothing will be able to live within 300 Celts of the explosion. However, they've lived through that before. They won't perish that easily. But we must at least eliminate him. Yes, there's nothing we need from there. So be it. Take care of it. If it is a direct hit, well then, your orders are given. There's almost too much there to know where to begin, which is why I've quoted from it at such length. The near anonymity of the unnamed speakers, the hive mind effect of their dialogue, monologue, bits and pieces of history and prophecy, their very different intentions from the masked woman, all this will have to remain tantalizing mystery for now. All those ellipses those italicized days of destruction, animus and anima, ethos and gatekeeper, the key, him, they'll all play their roles and get filled in, in time. We'll even hear about the other explosion of reactive material. But the orders for now, are given, that strange passive construction. It's going to be a radioactive purge, all to destroy a single person. You can probably guess who he is. That's the main thing that we're going to keep track of here. Back in the prison, Hammer's excitement is irrepressible. You sign Faye up right away, with help from Rue Cohen, and Satan decides to accompany them, out of curiosity, as you're allowed to go to the arena now, but nowhere else. Briefly out on the city map, there's guards blocking your way any farther. You might overhear a battler talking about a plan to stage an accident with the gears, but perhaps that's not even going to raise a blip beside the machinations that the player has just seen foreshadowed. Well, you meet Rue at the reception area. Hammer's there, too, to sell parts. You get the information more than you might ever need about battling in the arena. This, like so much of Xenogear's dialogue, is copious and technical, and this arena is going to be a game within the game. Satan sees through Cohen's plan to collect data from Faye in Veltal, 
it could be about those black boxes and lead to their investigation of what happened at the front, but maybe they care more about Faye himself and why he's so important to their mysterious benefactors. There's a kind of parallel here, obviously with Graf, concerned with Faye's power, but also with the Ava tournament. Whereas Faye took part in that as a distraction, here he's fighting in earnest for his own freedom. But the fight takes a totally different form from any other in the rest of the game. Something strange going on here. You have to even practice it first, if you choose, and it's wise to do so, using a tutorial mode against that little tin robot that you find in the caves. Then you get your first real bout. You can run around quickly, fire ether missiles that home in on the opponent, hit him with various button combinations that can launch him up in the air, and you can jump to what's like a Dragon Ball Z battle taking place in a fully 3D environment with all different sorts of effects of the different terrains. It's really a remarkable little piece of engineering. However, this first fight stops abruptly as we watch Veltal burn up and collapse, no matter what you've done up to that point. You see this Leonardo and one of the other battlers beat up in the baptism, his buddy Heinrich, talking about it later in the sewers. It's your first glimpse of them, probably. While Faye, wounded, is moaning by himself in the dark infirmary. It seems this wasn't Rico's plan to get back at Faye. It was their own. They also talk about how the rats are restless tonight. There's creepy things going on. There's sound of water dripping. In classic horror movie fashion, they split up. We get the view from down on the watercourse, tinted red, the edges of the screen distorted, and the sound of heartbeats accelerating. It zooms in on one of them for one kill first. That takes place off screen, though, with a roar of pain. And then zoom in again to see the other kill close up. That scream spelled out kind of like Ramses's was in his flashback. The next morning, Faye says he's had an awful dream. Maybe it's what we saw, but maybe it's what we saw the other time, too. His subconscious, his mother bouncing the ball to him. Anyhow, he can't recall. And he doesn't tell Satan anymore. Satan's parentheticals tell Faye to leave him alone for now and do his own thing. Hammer's glee at mixing business and brotherhood is palpable. It sounds like 
Faye is fighting for Hammer's future, too, but he cuts himself off before going quite that far. Sounds like Heinrich and Leonardo have pulled out because of mechanical trouble, giving you the win by default. And yet somehow, Veltal is already repaired and ready to fight again. As you win your way through the tournament, fighting two bouts per day and then going back to rest to trigger the next day's fights, you get prize money for each battle and a bonus. Maybe it depends on how you do in the round. Perhaps it increases if you win a flawless victory, not getting hurt, or beating your opponent in a quick time. I haven't looked this up. Also, I'm not sure whether there's any real effects within the battle arena fights of the gear upgrades that you make outside. Um, but then I don't have a great grasp on how gear upgrades work in the first place. I think they actually can depend on things that your character is equipped with, not just the gears. But winning your way through is actually pretty straightforward, despite all the complex button combos and variables that might enter into these things. Now, on the third day, it's Rico who comes down the stairs, not Hammer. And Satan, overhearing his conversation with Faye, joins it. There must be a special reason for you to grace us with your presence, he says. It's unclear whether his formality is actually polite or ironic. Rico comes clean about the explosion not being his doing, but his men's. And apparently this is the first you might have heard of the mysterious murders if you've been all business about going to the battle arena each day. Satan, anyhow, seems to have heard about them. And he pieces together pretty quickly what Rico's motive is in coming to Faye with this information. Rico expresses some doubt and some faith, too. It's very strange the terms he puts this in. He talks about their weakness leading to their death. That, as Solaris seems to believe, is okay. That's, he even says, providence. But that five battlers have been killed in a row down in the sewers is unprecedented. He's not going to lie and say he doesn't have his doubts that Faye might be responsible. But he's not quite calling him guilty yet, either. Rico is going to go and see what's going on in the sewers to try to protect his men and women, I think. Um, maybe this is his reason to stay on his chance, this loyalty to those who so clearly admire him. Now, Faye, again without the players say so, decides he'll go along with him to prove he's innocent of the murders. So Tan throws his sad into things, too, as he says, to help solve the mystery. The sewer guard, when you go up, is astonished to see the champ himself descending into the bowels of the city, telling him, let no one else in. As you enter for the first time, you see things again from that monster point of view. So the monster can't be Faye, can it? But the view is green-tinted this time, whereas before I think it was red. 
There's a soft sound audible over the babble of water of the monster retreating down the waterway. That Satan hears it, and in proper detective fashion, he is the main force in investigating the scenes of the murders. Were the outline chalked in, or is it just the bloody remains of bone and sinew? All are located near pipes with slime around them. At one of these sites, Satan notices writing on the wall, written in the dying man's blood. He can make out the words, Red Monster. Now other monsters are red. There's the bats that use confusion screeches on you and hit pretty hard. There's other colors of monsters too down there. There's the grayish flesh-colored blob that counters any death blows you use on it, strongly encouraging you to gain new skills by hitting it with different combos of button attacks. There's the green frogs that call their friends and call rain down on you. There's spiky little insects that might hit you and run away from the battle. And there's a huge fish that whaps you with its tail. You have plenty of opportunities to level up, all things considered, to learn new skills in the way that you learn them in most battles in the game, although not in the battle arena, where actual player use of skill matters in a slightly different way. There's a safe point down there, too, in the sewers. That is a memory cube. Apparently, those robot figures have access to what you put in those memory cubes. And you can use that to recover with tents if you need to before taking on the boss. Down another ladder at the waterfall, you come to another level. And I think that's where you'll find the map, so that's helpful. But it doesn't let you know quite how big the sewers are. There's another level, and each one larger than the one above. When you go down each ladder, or later up one ladder to a locked door, and I don't know quite how the geometry of that works, but anyway, each time you're about to come to a new part of the sewers, you see things from the monster's viewpoint again, watching you from down low in the water. Isn't he luring your party deeper into his domain? And again, Satan hears something, this time a tinkle sound. He repeats that twice. It's kind of funny, actually. I heard a tinkle sound. Could it be a bell? They suggest. Enrico remembers. Yeah, there's rumors. Rumors of a bell ringing in the sewers. He catches a whiff, Rico does, of a burning smell by another one of the murder sites. And the monster does use fire-based techniques later. We'll see. More evidence, right, that the monster you meet must be the killer. You also, down there, will find some rat catcher machines. One of them is broken, it seems. It's not moving. But no, it's just been jammed by a set of keys that will open the door to the treatment plant. These keys belong to one of the other dead men, Vargas. This is where... All the pipes meet, which the slime would suggest 
is what the monster uses to get around the sewers. Although, we tend to see it traveling along the water. And as you're discussing this, it lurks nearby, listening, even watching your party. There's another little character down there that you meet, a, a tiny green mutant. Rico calls him Gramps, which is also the name of the train watcher man on the observatory tower. But being underground, he's a bit more like Old Man Ball from the cave in the desert. This green Gramps knows about the killer, but he isn't bothered by it as a fellow mutant. You might wonder, if you haven't already, what's causing all these mutations. Rico's hammers. There were some in Ovid, too, in the guy standing outside the tent, the balloon giver. Anyway, we'll have to come back to that. But lately, Gramps says, his neighbor began busting things up. Again, he directs you towards the treatment room, the sewer treatment room that's been locked. Now you've got the key for it, hopefully, and Satan has a theory about how you're going to catch this monster. He doesn't spell it out. He says something only happened once, and they say, it's unclear who, that the monster won't return to the same place, i.e. where it killed before. And while trying to find the right key, trying them one at a time, and... Uh, figuring out that the door at the top of the ladder opens from the inside. It's a bit of comic relief. This one door that needs the key, actually, to the sewer treatment plant, the place where things get clean, right? As you're fiddling with them, it gives the monster another chance to escape. You don't catch it in there. And there's no slime in there either, for some reason. I don't think that's ever really explained. But there is a treasure chest at the center of the room. You can't miss it. Holds the bell amulet. It's one of those key items that you just have to hold on to. You can't actually use it in any other fashion than to progress the story. There is another hidden item, though, which the camera gives you a view of. And so you know to jump up high. It's a pretty rare one, the Ether Veiler, which will double your elemental defense. Other treasures here include the cool shades, which protect against confusion, the gallant belt, which will increase your HP slightly, and a knight helm. Faye suggests that you lure the monster out with its own bell, and Satan hints that you should think about what you already know. The hint seems to be that you need to ring this bell. Somewhere there is slime, but not a murder spot. And Gramps points you in the right direction, if you haven't already discovered that spot. When you come to the right pipe, ringing the bell summons the monster. But though you watch it approach, it actually sneaks up and attacks your party from behind. It's gel attack confuses and it has poison too it can hit two members of your party in the same turn which seems a little unfair until you consider you're fighting against it three on one its bloody rain attack hits all your party members for relatively low damage 
and recovers its own HP a little bit. Its murder attack, though, steals all HP from one of your characters. So restores him, again, hurts you. But winning this fight is pretty simple, actually. It's just a matter of healing up, hitting back. Hopefully your speed is high enough and you've learned a square combo by now with each of your characters to get some turns in between the damage it can deal you. Hopefully you also have Zetasols enough to revive any of those of your party who are murdered each time they go down. You can also use Sutan spells to heal the whole party at once. You probably don't want to worry about building up combos in this fight particularly, uh, but just hit hard and fast as you can. For this playthrough for me, Oster made it a little easier by killing Rico repeatedly, since his slow speed renders him practically worthless in the battle anyway. And once you prevail, they asks again, why did it have a bell? It's very sad, actually. Satan suggests it was human. It had not only sentimentality of the bell, but intelligence remaining. This mystery of the murders seems solved, then, only to open up this greater mystery. What makes a human being? What turns one into a monster? We'll learn more about that side of it only quite a bit later. After the fight with the boss, you zip back to the entrance. And Rico seems has a fairly serious injury to his left arm, but he gruffly ignores it and leaves your party for the time being. Scene shifts this time to Satan, manifesting in that surreal throne room again. He's reporting to the Emperor Cain that he has awoken twice, no, three times. So that's Bahan, the border, and the third is unclear. It's left unsaid too who the other person is besides Cain and the elders who could have moved him him, Faye, of course, right? But for this other person, the signs point to Graf. Removing him, which is ambiguous, Satan says would be hasty at this juncture. But Cain defers to Satan, who says his will is the Emperor's. Or rather, the Emperor seems to agree with his servant here. Without uh, fully understanding what it is Satan is playing at, I think. But then we don't fully understand either. As they're about to go, he holds him back, though. Gets some sort of communication coming through. Their judgment has been handed down. A purge. So, those orbs we saw were the elders of Solaris. But then this question arises again. Who is in charge here? Is it them 
It came. Is it tan? <laughs> Anyhow, the player is privy again to one final set of scenes in these chapters where we see Ellie and the Gebler boys getting those orders passed down the chain. And they, Ellie particularly, are asking similar questions about hierarchy. And they settle them in their own way. The plan is that they'll be escorting something called the Hect towards, well, it's unclear what the objective is, actually. And Ellie isn't able to get any clarification about that objective. She asks as if it'll help her perform better in dealing with things that might arise. But the officer seems to take offense. Maybe he himself doesn't know their full objective. At any rate, he does make clear that this is to be a purge, that lambs will die as is only right, their right as Solarians, of course, to take that life. Solaris's own gate generator, as we heard about from Sigurd way back, one of them anyway is buried nearby, it sounds like, and that precludes cloaking for some reason. Could that be part of the reason why the initial raid in Kislev that Ellie was on was compromised? They got caught? Well, she snaps at Vance, whether that's on her mind or not, on the way out, and she threatens him when he calls her hysterical. He's cowed. And anyway, to her, it seems she's thinking quite rationally about all this. She's very technical about the firepower that they are to escort. Apparently, it's overkill by an order of magnitude. Now, seeing her concern, Rank opens up with her about their status differences. The, the other Gebler men, it seems, are just third-class, lowly citizens. But she, of course, is the daughter of one of the high command, as we continue to hear about. Now, the upshot of this conversation, though they seem to share this concern with her, is something less than full clarity or trust between Ellie and her men, any more than there's clarity and trust between her and her superiors. But at least that seed is planted that she is not completely on board with the Solaris project at this point. We'll have to see how that will take uh, in the next few chapters. I haven't decided quite how far I'm going to try to go this next time. But anyway, this talk of black boxes, uh, I actually saw in an unexpected connection used of Skinner's psychology of behaviorism recently, and uh, I don't know whether that's any less discredited now than Freudian and Jungian and all the other classic modes of psychology that we've kind of touched upon, but it does seem like that behaviorist idea is built in here um, and possibly is being alluded to by the use of the term black box. I haven't been able to actually hunt down where it is Skinner is supposed to have used that phrase referring to the human mind, but anyhow, I'll try to post something to give a taste of Skinner's 
psychology uh, as our kind of recommended reading for the company gameplay for this week. And I'll try to be back with another episode, hopefully with a little more poetry, a little less straight quotation for the next time. Thanks for listening.